Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, the latest of our tech uh, webinars. I'm Paul Sharing. I'm a senior fellow here at the Center for New American Security and director of our technology and national security program. I'm joined today uh, by my colleagues, Martin Rasser and Nikki Riccone. And uh, we're going to be talking today about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on technology and national security issues. Um, this is now, we're, we're about two weeks into going virtual uh, here at CNAS across most of the rest of the country. I hope uh, you are all doing well and staying safe and staying healthy and your families as well. Um, just a kind of a quick kind of announcement on some issues here at CNAS and our tech program. Um, over the last two weeks, we have had a, a steady stream of virtual activities. We're going to be continuing these going forward. Uh, we've done a number of live Twitter chats. We'll be having another one uh, this Friday at 11 a.m. I hope you can join us. And uh, we'll be setting into a regular rhythm of uh, webinars and Twitter chats in the weeks ahead. So please look for more from us um, in that and we continue to reach out and, and give you what that, what that schedule is going to be. All right, with that, uh, let's launch into what we've been seeing in just the last six days. I can't believe that's it since the last webinar we did last week. It feels like six years. Um, the world is moving at a, at a dizzying pace. Um, we're seeing huge shifts, not just only in um, the virus itself, but of course, all of these major secondary impacts on society, on the economy, um, the state of Virginia, at least shutting down schools for the remainder of the year. Obviously, the market's been all over the place um, as the government grapples with stimulus. Market, uh, Martin, what are the sort of most significant things that you've seen in the last week on some of these tech and national security issues that are on your mind? Well, probably the thing I found most intriguing in the past few days is this incredible soft power blitz by, by China, particularly focused on Europe right now. You have um, you know, aid being flown in to Serbia, Greece, Italy, Ireland. So we're talking uh, personal protective equipment. We're talking telecommunication equipment. Uh, they're doing virtual conferences with medical experts. But it's not just the government doing this. Um, also, Huawei and Alibaba are making big pushes. Like Huawei, for example, they are shipping 80,000 uh, masks to the Netherlands. Alibaba uh, is sending pallets and pallets of medical equipment to various European countries. So it's a very intriguing an interesting approach uh, to soft power projection. If you look at the countries that Huawei is targeting, uh, not surprisingly, it's exactly the countries that Huawei is looking to secure 5G contracts. Alibaba, back in December and January, made a lot of noise about wanting to, to go into Europe and ultimately supplant Amazon as being the leading e-commerce company. So here you see Beijing not just taking advantage of the fact that, you know, the United States is frankly on its heels right now in terms of being able to project 
power, um, some soft power in this case, like helping out other European countries. So Beijing is taking advantage of that opening, but at the same time using their companies as an extension of that soft power projection in order to to gain commercial advantage at the same time. So it's a, it's a very intriguing uh, approach to all this. Ultimately, though, I don't think this is going to work out in Beijing's favor because while all this is happening, at the same time, there's a lot of propaganda and misinformation. So we've seen the push to essentially rewrite history, trying to blame the United States for the virus, the, that the U.S. military somehow introduced the virus to the Wuhan area and that it spread that way. The Europeans understand this. They know this. They're not naive, but they're willing to accept the aid, of course, because they're in, they're in dire straits. They need this equipment. There's no doubt that there's a shortage. Um, but you can already start seeing that pushback uh, where various European commentators have noted that you know, Beijing is trying to drive a wedge between the EU and the United States, but also to drive wedges between individual EU countries. So the understanding of what Beijing is ultimately after is, is certainly there. You know, Beijing isn't known for its subtlety when it comes to matters like this. So uh, yes, for the short term, it is a, a thumb in the eye of the United States. But I think for the long term, once we get things under control here within the United States and we're able to to better reach out to allies. I think we can overcome some of the the setbacks that we're dealing with right now, but still something to keep an eye on because you can tell Beijing is is feeling confident, they're feeling strong, and they're looking to take advantage of this situation. Yeah, I mean, I've got to feel like certainly the last couple of weeks have been terrible for U.S.-China relations and the Chinese propaganda about um, the origin of the virus, really not so veiled Chinese threats about cutting off things like supply chains of life-saving drugs to the United States, uh, have angered politicians here. But I've got to think that these uh, deliveries of these sort of vital medical equipment to other countries are going to win goodwill, uh, and that even if other countries can see through some of the disinformation that Beijing uh, is winning out that, you know, hey, if, uh, if life-saving medical equipment comes along with China throwing some insults at the United States, like, so be it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, there, w there will be elements of, of uh, populations in various countries that will probably have more positive feelings toward China because of this, especially in the heat of the moment of this, this horrible crisis. So our job then, as we get things under control here at home and in Europe, is to not let people forget the, uh, the missteps of the Beijing government, the censorship, and the outright lies. Um, this is something that we haven't been pushing back on very effectively so far, I don't think. So we need to come up with a more strategic approach to make sure that the narrative doesn't get rewritten uh, to Beijing's advantage. Yeah, I think what's been so striking to me is just how absent American leadership has been on the global stage in the midst of this crisis. That, whereas you could imagine, say, 20 years ago, um, the American president would have been front and center in sort of 
trying to galvanize global cooperation on any global crisis. Um, the combination of, of a number of factors. I mean, sort of Trump's America first approach is, you know, certainly a major contributing factor, but there are other longer term ones that predate Trump here that are, that are playing a factor, including the, you know, really push on a big segment of the American people to turn away from globalization, to turn away from America's leadership role in the world, all of which is driving the fact now that we have this major global crisis and the U.S. just isn't, is just absent in terms of playing a major leadership role. It's, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see without U.S. leadership, no other like-minded country is, is able to step into the void. And that's what China's exploiting right now. Because if you look within the EU, when you really started getting the sense of how serious the situation was in Italy, you know, Germany, France, they were nowhere to be seen. They did not step in to aid Italy as much as they could. Instead, you know, they started closing borders. People started limiting exports of critical medical equipment. So it's really only the United States that can play that, that vital role for the world's liberal democracies. Even though South Korea and Japan were very good at mitigating the epidemic at home, they don't have the capacity to do the type of leadership and outreach activities in other parts of the world to, to help other countries. So unless the, unless America is, is willing to step up, um, you know, China is going to exploit the situation and you know, Russia is, is hot on their heels. Russia as well is starting to send, um, you know, planes full of, of uh, necessary equipment to European countries uh, as a way to, you know, offset, uh, the U.S. presence there, so yeah, it's, uh, it's not a, not a good situation. And I hope that uh, the State Department can start focusing on countering these efforts in in a much more effective manner that has happened to date. You know, it's interesting. There are ways in which this crisis has, I think, really upended how a lot of things about how we think about national security. Um, but then there are other ways in which it is, it is reinforcing in a dramatic way, I think, some of the existing trends that were underway or some of the concerns that people have had for a while in the national security community. And one of these revolves around this concern that the U.S. is in an era of great power competition against China. Um, that I think, you know, I can see that if you weren't in the U.S. national security community, maybe it sounded kind of overhyped or overplayed or that's too militaristic. But you see it so clearly on display. And not just the, not sort of the domestic response, but really the global response to the, the pandemic and how China has been so assertive globally in soft power in terms of delivery of medical aid, in terms of the narrative where the U.S. is just, we don't really have the institutional capacity to even be relevant um, globally in sort of this information competition in terms of getting the U.S. narrative out there the same way that China is doing. Um, all of which you know, has really significant long-term effects. These crises can, can dramatically change world events. We're seeing uh, this is doing that. And this, this lens of shifting to viewing this competition towards one from not just really between the U.S. and China, but between the U.S. and like-minded countries, other democratic nations, as you were saying, Martin, is really the most, it's really, that's the competition that we're in. Um, and that lens, I think, is really valuable when we think about how we manage this going forward. 
Um, because you're right, we haven't seen any other country step into that role, but we need to be working closely with our democratic allies in Europe and Asia uh, to marshal an effective global response, not just to the crisis itself, but also sort of what is the geopolitical order in the aftermath of this? Uh, because we're in this period of time where a lot of things are in flux um, and we're seeing a lot of competition for who has a leadership position going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ultimately, I find it very discomforting how how little cooperation with, with the U.S. allies uh, there's been. If you look, for example, there's... You know, what could we do together to scale production of critical equipment, um, joint R&D for a vaccine? But then more importantly, the, the larger economic fallout, what kind of economic policies and fiscal stimulus could we coordinate on to more effectively respond to what looks like could be a very severe economic crisis? Um, I'll give you a, a little example of how this, you, you mentioned the America first approach, but I would almost describe it as a, you know, insert country name first approach mm. because all our allies and partners have essentially done the same thing. So the other day, um, last night, in fact, I was uh, just going through some Dutch press reports. My, my parents live in Amsterdam, so I'm just trying to stay abreast of, of what's going on in the Netherlands and came across this article about the, the Dutch company Philips. So they're a large manufacturer of medical equipment. They have a subsidiary here in Pittsburgh, which makes ventilators, which as I'm sure most of you know, is one of the critical uh, types of medical equipment needed to treat people that are in, infected with, with COVID-19. The management at Philips was concerned that if the United States um, executed on the Defense Production Act, that they would not be able to export any ventilators back to Europe, where there's also a critical shortage. But then the article noted, well, uh, one point of leverage is that some of the critical components for these ventilators are actually sourced in Europe, with the uh, implication that if the U.S., halted exports of this equipment back to Europe, that Europe would halt the exports of these components, and then no one would have the ventilators. And as far as I can tell, there's no dialogue going on between the United States and the EU about harmonizing production of this vital equipment. It seems like a very low bar for joint cooperation so that, you know, all sides can benefit as opposed to now where you have fear and antagonism on both sides, which would lead to the result that, that no one gets the equipment that we need. And there's some very simple things that as a country and as an alliance that we should be doing to work together more effectively on, on dealing with this crisis right now. Yeah, there's been a lot of searching for um, sort of historical parallels, right? And, and certainly, you know, some of the things that leap earliest to mind are things like 9-11, where there's this dramatic event, and all of a sudden, there's the world before and the world after, and they're different. And you can see now, looking forward into the weeks ahead, that things are going to be different and never quite the same. But there was a sense of uncertainty about what the months had had in a way that you know doesn't feel like we've had since 2001 since that time frame when you knew that things were changing but you didn't know what it was going to look like we were in historical parallels to world war ii and the national level effort that was needed to sort of 
galvanize the whole country behind um, a major national challenge. One of the, I think those are all very apt. One of the things that's been on my mind lately is the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930 mm. um, that sort of sparked a wave of protectionism in response to, of course, the start of the depression beforehand, the, the stock market crash, um, but then began to unravel globalization uh, that had come out of the Industrial Revolution and sparked a wave of protectionism around the world in the early 20th century and dramatically deepened uh, the global depression. And I worry that we're in a period of time now where this pandemic is hitting on top of pre-existing trends in nationalism, in populism, in a, a global retrenchment against globalization, um, where we've seen a lot of economic disruption and a lot of inequality in a number of countries, a lot of people left behind by globalization. And now this comes on top of it and everyone turns inward, right? And, you know, certainly there are elements to which the way that the administration, of course, has been portraying the virus as it's foreign and you, know, you get fears of foreigners when it's all it's here now, right? They um, started in China, but like it's very much here now. Um, but, but this idea of sort of what you're talking about, of every country kind of taking care of their own is... Uh, is a scary world ahead. And there's, I think, a real, real need for uh, leadership by the U.S. and other nations to ensure that we're working together to manage these disruptions uh, as best we can, for sure. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, my, my biggest concern is that the economic fallout from this will be so great that it really starts, uh, you know, tearing the fabric of, of the the alliance framework that the United States has built since World War II. But it's not too late. I mean, we've got time to to, to get our act together and, and really start focusing on the bigger picture. I think there's no question that we'll see some pretty significant changes to how our economy is structured. Um, you, you, the fact that our supply chains are so vulnerable is, is a big wake-up call. So... I would anticipate, and we talked about this last week as well, how we'll see a, a, a disentanglement of, of certain supply chains. But at the same time, that should also be a stimulus to more effectively co uh, cooperate and collaborate with our, with our allies. Because, again, we can't go completely within ourselves and, be, and become this autarkic nation because... If we have another natural disaster, another epidemic within the United States, uh, you know, massive floods, earthquakes, what have you, we'll be facing the same problems if everything is concentrated within our own borders. So I hope that all this will en end up being a call to action for much closer uh, cooperative relationships with like-minded countries as well as you know, not being as heavily dependent on countries like China that, as we are constantly reminded, do not have our best interests uh, at the forefront of their minds. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that it really brings to the forefront is that there is both the immediate challenge of how to respond to um, this, you know, sort of really obviously, I mean, literally exponentially growing um, pandemic and how our countries respond in terms of putting in various protective measures in place. But there is, there is a long haul here. 
um, of how do countries manage the long haul in terms of stress on their healthcare system, managing the economic disruption. And then, you know, once we even get through the probably will be several waves of uh, the virus directly affecting people, how do we climb out of the economic downturn that this is already driving? And how do different countries do that? And how do we do that? Uh, how do we work with our allies to do that? That there's both you know, some very pressing uh, and critical immediate challenges, but there's also a longer term uh, issue at play here uh, that how countries manage that will have a major impact on two, three years from now, uh, where they stand globally and how they relate to one another. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and the unknowns of the economic impact of, of this crisis is, um, yeah, it's profound. There's a lot of talk now about, you know, China getting back into it. You know, they're anticipating 8% growth in, in the second quarter. But at the same time, their export market will be severely depressed. And so you, you have to wonder what these rosy scenarios coming out of Beijing, what will happen if and when those don't come true? If, if their export markets in North America and Europe don't recover at the rate that they're expecting, you know, what, what do they tell the Chinese people in that case? Because you have to remember, even now, the Chinese economy, the best estimates I've seen is only about 80% back to where it normally is. Uh, the true story, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, the, the numbers coming out of Beijing are always a lot rosier than, than reality. So a lot remains to be seen. And I think that uncertainty is always very challenging for for any type of economic recovery because people will not spend money if they're not confident in the future. And the biggest challenge for governments around the world is to make sure that people feel secure about their future again. And this, this epidemic, this crisis is such a shock to the system, uh, such a shock to the psyche that this, this may be a very, very long recovery, I'm afraid. Yeah, the thing, you know, one of the areas where it seems like the pandemic has just totally upended things here in Washington is certainly U.S.-China relations, uh, one where there's been a lot of debate over the last year about the direction of the U.S. with China and how much engagement versus decoupling and how we manage relations with China. And this is, you know, uh, this whole event has put its uh, hand pretty firmly on the scales of uh, viewing China as uh, a competitor. As someone who's not our friend, it's sort of hard to, to sort of buy the, oh, well, if we just work nicely with them, then they'll be on our side argument, uh, given some of the things we've seen the Chinese government doing, um, and particularly issues around economic entanglement. But the other one that strikes me is debates around sort of the role of the U.S. government in the economy have been ones that we've had a lot of conversation in Washington in the last year, particularly when it comes to things like technology policy, right? And when we want to maintain a position as a global technology leader, uh, what is the role the federal government should be playing in technology policy, in funding research and development, in standard setting, in, in other areas where the government used to play a much bigger role in the 1960s and 70s. And it ceded a lot of that to private industry. And we begin to see the U.S. over the last you know, decade or so falling behind countries like China. And China's starting to catch up. And really, prior to this, on path, 
to uh, maintaining a position as a global technology leader in the next decade, China on path to overtake the U.S. Uh, in the next decade. Now, this throws all of that up for grabs in big ways in both countries. But one of the things that it seems to just dramatically change is the dialogue about, you know, should the government be involved to that degree in the economy? Like that debate seems completely over, at least at the moment, when you've got Republicans in Congress pushing a $1 trillion plus uh, stimulus package. I mean, you know, it used to be in like roundtables that we would hold a few months ago, industrial policy was kind of a dirty word. You hear people kind of whisper it. People be like, well, should the U.S. Yeah, no, have? Exactly. I don't know. And now you have a Republican president suggesting that we nationalize certain companies. It's, I mean, uh, it's a remarkable thing to see. But yet, at the same time, at the same time, uh, you, you know, you mentioned R and D spending. Well, we haven't. You know, the the U.S. government has stepped back from really steering the country in a certain direction when it comes to things like that. You know, if you, if you like, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the big events from from past decades, like the Apollo program. You know, so much of the technologies that we depend on today come from investments that the United States government did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And once you start taking your foot off the gas pedal in that sense and, and ceding a lot of that initiative to private industry, yes, we were able to, to do very well economically based on that foundation of investments, but that strategic direction isn't there anymore. And that, that's the issue for, for the decades ahead is how do we kind of get back on track where we, you know, I think you truly need a, a national government in order to set some type of strategic direction for where the country should go in terms of science and technology. Overall, individual companies yes they can they'll do the right things in the sense of they're looking out for their shareholders and their employees and they'll innovate and come up with interesting things but it's within the context of what they are seeking to do in their industry and that there's no broader cohesive vision for where the country should go as a as an snt power um so if people are willing to talk about industrial policy again and things like that, a large part of that should be also setting the strategic framework for where we want to be in AI, quantum computing, biotechnology, all these areas that are going to be fundamentally important to the 21st century, fundamentally important in order to be able to respond effectively to crises like this, like this pandemic. Um, you know, the federal government has to step up its game in, in order to, to help the country move forward and recover from this. Yeah, well, and you certainly see it in areas like 5G, where if we sort of let the market take its course and globalize and, and, and move towards market efficiencies, we'll get specialization. We'll get U.S. firms that play, you know, really vital roles in elements of the 5G chain. Um, but we also may end up with outcomes that are not, you know, sort of sensible or don't meet national security needs because we're not taking into account geopolitics that are real, mm -hmm. right? That competitor nations like China, they are um, um, in, you know, sort of injecting into their approach thinking about these national security considerations. I want to talk a little bit about some news that we might have missed 
in the last uh, few weeks as we have been quite rightly, I think for many of us, focused on uh, this pandemic and then sort of the consequences of it. In particular, some very interesting news in the semiconductor world. Um, Martin, do you want to sort of lead off of what we've been seeing here? I'm thinking about the TSMC news last week, which I thought was pretty significant. It might have flown under the radar as people were following some of these rapidly changing events involving the pandemic. Right. Yeah. So TSMC, um, that's a uh, Taiwan Sheng, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, um, one of the premier semiconductor fabs in the world. Uh, right now, they are very much at the cutting edge of semiconductor technology. And the company is, uh, is looking to open a second fabrication plant for semiconductors at the two nanometer scale. This is the absolute cutting edge right now. This particular news report that Paul was alluding to um, stated that the company was in fact considering open up, opening up this plant in the United States. Um, obviously there's some pressure from uh, Washington uh, behind that, but it's still remarkable that the company would consider it because that means fewer jobs in Taiwan but at the same time, it's also an acknowledgement that geographic diversity and supply chains is critical. And rather than going to China or another country, they're looking to the United States. And this, this is exactly the type of disentanglement, so to speak, that I think we'll see more of as we climb our way out of this crisis, because this is providing access to critical supply chains in a way that is much more dependable than if you had another facility a few miles from your other one in Taiwan, or if you put it uh, somewhere else in East Asia. So it's this type of thinking that I think will become more prevalent over the next few months and years, and something that over the long run, not only will it benefit countries like the United States and uh, our allies in Europe and Asia, but it will also help preserve the, the concept of globalization in a way that is, is more secure for the long run and much more amenable to our view of how the world should be. Well, it hits on a lot of these sort of issues that we've been talking about. So one is about certainly supply chain security. And you know something like having a cutting-edge semiconductor fabrication facility here in the United States would allow for the production of more trusted supply chains, particularly for things like defense equipment, um, where that's absolutely vital to be able to have fabrication that you you can have more confidence in um, that it's protected as it's been manufactured. But the other one is one of simply diversification, right? And it's um, you know, we have this situation right now where just a massive uh, chunk of the world's semiconductor production is in this one place in Taiwan, and in particular in like a real geopolitical hotspot, right? It's a place where um, there's a lot of concern about potentially, you know, uh, somewhere down the road, a conflict. And I think one of the things that we'll see people rethinking in the national security context in the years ahead after this pandemic is, how do we widen the aperture of how we think about unexpected shocks to the system and risks? And it's not that, you know, a pandemic was unforeseeable. There were lots of, you could, you could look at 
other outbreaks and there were lots of experts that said, you know, we run at the risk of this, but it clearly wasn't something that we invested heavily as a nation into being prepared for this kind of risk. And I've already heard people reaching out and saying like, man, what else should we be thinking about, right? How do we sort of widen the, the aperture of how we think about potential futures and other wildcard events that might upend things? Um, and when you think about sort of certainly the risk of disruption in the semiconductor world, having all of that fabrication concentrated in some very small area that is a geopolitical hotspot does seem like it's potentially problematic, right? That, you know, sort of the data is the new oil is like, ooh, everybody cringes at that. That's, that's overwrought um, to say, you know, data is the new oil. China's the new Saudi Arabia. That's a little bit silly. Um, but it's not wrong to say that Taiwan is the Saudi Arabia of semiconductors. Uh, that, is, that is very much true in this case. Um, and is that in the long run, as we see the industry evolve, is it sort of the optimal geopolitical landscape or, or the benefits to diversifying some of that elsewhere? I would suspect that there probably are if we can manage some of the increased costs because there are going to be, uh, as TSMC was pretty upfront about, and an article, there are going to be increased costs in setting up a fab here in the U.S. or, or anywhere else for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of these decisions over the years made perfect sense from a business standpoint, right? It was all about optimization and efficiency. But I think what this crisis is now showing that the those fundamental tenets need to be reconsidered. And perhaps our traditional understanding of what optimization and efficiency meant doesn't hold true anymore as we're seeing now and that resilience and redundancy becomes much more important because you imagine if the shutdown in China had gone on much longer, we would start seeing some significant shortages in critical inputs to our economy. We're still seeing it with medical equipment, the fact that a lot of it um, just is not making it to the United States because the Chinese put export controls on them. Um, and now they're sending a lot to Europe and not to the United States. Uh, the whole restructuring of supply chains, introducing that security that you mentioned, Paul, um, and, and just that um, dependability that we need in order to, to function as a society, that's probably going to be one of the biggest things that com comes out of this situation that we're in now. So let's shift to talking about um, this new supercomputing initiative that was launched out of the White House uh, just earlier this week. Um, the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium, where there are a whole a bunch of industry and academic and government partners uh, working together. Um, very exciting news. Great to, to see this coming together and then leveraging sort of U.S. government supercomputing resources at the national labs um, in places like the Department of Energy to try to um, leverage these for COVID-19 related research. What's your take on this, Martin? Well, that's an absolutely fantastic development, right? It's it's something that we've talked a lot about at CNAS, uh, also with other colleagues in Washington, making compute available to the people that truly need it, right? Particularly the uh, organizations that do not have the financial means to afford the types of computing power that they need to do their work. 
So I'm very encouraged by this. And as a corollary, uh, another fantastic development, and our colleagues at CSET played, uh, played a large role in this, was also making available a lot of uh, medical and scientific literature on, on uh, coronaviruses in order to use artificial intelligence techniques such as natural language processing to, to analyze this data and hopefully by rapidly being able to make sense of this information, extract insights, help uh, medical experts find ways to more effectively counteract this. So it's a very nice confluence of, of things that, that is needed, you know, more creative approaches to addressing crises like these. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very encouraging sign. Um, and yeah, this is uh, one of the, the few bright spots that, that we've seen so far uh, during, during this pandemic. Yeah, it is exciting, and you know, I don't, I don't want to make it all about AI. I don't, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it loops back to this issue, but I have been struck by the fact that this is an area where um, we've seen uh, advanced computing and machine learning begin to play a significant role in biotechnology as we begin to sort of digitize life and digitize mm-hmm. biology, and now we can throw compute resources at it. We've seen advancements with machine learning in things like protein folding um, over the past few years, and they've been able to outperform older methods of even using computers for protein folding. So very encouraging. Now, what this will mean, uh, it's hard to say, but any kind of cooperation like this to leverage uh, these kinds of resources to marshal sort of all of the energy that we have uh, against this challenge is very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the potential for rapid drug discovery, because you don't have to do the the physical tests in labs anymore, you can do it uh, digitally using artificial intelligence. And then, of course, you know, pr- predictive uh, disease outbreak modeling, that also helps us understand how these epidemics spread, um, you know, infection rates, uh, helping to triage people that are they're sick, you know, who, who is in most need of medical treatment so you can allocate your resources more effectively. There's a lot of promise and potential. Um, and it's good to see that uh, some of those initial steps are being taken now, but uh, we won't see the, the true impact until after we get through the most immediate phase of this crisis. And because obviously the more, the more data we get on uh, all the people that are being treated now, and once we have a better understanding how this virus is propagating uh, through, uh, through our populations, we'll be able to glean a lot more after the fact. Because if you, if you look back at the, the last two coronavirus outbreaks, we've had uh, SARS and MERS, you know, the numbers were so much smaller. And so this is, this is just a whole new ball game right now. But the massive amounts of data that we'll have coming out of this will hopefully help us understand what future outbreaks could look like so we can respond more quickly and more effectively. Yeah, it's been exciting to see the rapid cooperation among the scientific community globally in sharing information and sharing what practitioners are seeing um, as they're treating this in um, sharing potential approaches to something like a vaccine. I think what's been interesting is, you know, normally the sort of science happens among the scientists, and then there's some filtering process to the public of, you know, the scientific community reaches a consensus about an approach. 
And for medical issues, for example, that then is presented through journal articles to practitioners, and then there's guidance that comes out through established medical authorities. And here we see the public is sort of right inside this decision cycle, and the media is inside it. Uh, a really tragic story you know, of a couple that had died um, by sort of taking some, you know, uh, uh, you know, they found in their aquarium and their fish tank cleaner that was related to chemicals involved in an anti-malarial drug that people are researching. And this kind of thing where, um, you know, the information flows on the one hand are faster in today's environment. Um, you know, I remember reading information about what was happening in hospitals in Italy through social media a few days before they came out through more established news sources. So it gives people a heads up. On the other hand, um, you know, can of course lead to tragic outcomes if people are then taking actions based on information that isn't quite mature yet. Um, I've seen, you know, just in the last week, the medical community back and forth and back and forth, and even something simple like ibuprofen, uh, to take it or not to take it, and this information. And of course, that's part of the nature of the scientific process. We don't yet know. Um, but it is a challenging situation then for people to be in in terms of how they respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's difficult when so much of this is happening in real time and is so accessible to everyone because um, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation floating around. And yeah, that makes the situation very difficult. Uh, on the positive note, though, one, um, one aspect of social media that's been very effective is um, there's um, an outfit called ProMed they actually had very good early warning of, of the outbreak in China based on so, uh, social media posts that, that were uh, being posted by, by local residents. So there, there, there is a good early warning system that we could build based on just the prevalence of, of data that's coming in you know, from anywhere at this point. And just imagine what happens once we start transitioning to 5G when people, devices are, are all connected, could amplify the, the positive effects. But of course, there's also much more risk of severe downsides as well. And yeah, it'll just be a challenge to, to strike that balance between informed positive information and, and harmful information going forward. Well, we are um, running up at the end of the hour, but I want to give you a minute, Martin, to maybe say a word about um, the new project that we launched. Uh, this week, uh, Technology Alliance, which is relevant to many of the things that we're talking about. Maybe could you say a word about that and the goals of the project for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. We are together with a think tank partner in Europe and one in Asia working on a project to build an alliance framework for technology policy. And I, a lot of the topics that we've discovered uh, discussed today are very much relevant to this project and, and shows the need for greater collaboration between like-minded countries. Um, so what we're doing throughout this project is engaging as many stakeholders as we can from industry, government, and civil society in North America, Europe, and Asia to talk about what these areas of cooperation could be. And that could be anywhere from joint R&D to setting norms and values for how technologies are used to uh, potential export controls 
doesn't matter what it is so much as the fact that it will provide a foundation for these companies to collaborate together. Um, again, this is about being able to more effectively compete in the 21st century economy. And over the course of this project, we're holding a series of workshops where people discuss ideas. And by the end of the project, what we'll do is, is pretty much build a blueprint for what this organization would look like. So we're going to delve into issues like organizational structure, membership, the decision-making process. So on the one hand, we'll have a lot of the you know, activities, the work that this organization would do, but we're also going to talk about the nuts and bolts, what it would actually take to build an organization like this and have it function effectively. At the conclusion of the project, we'll submit a non-public report to senior policymakers in the proposed member countries, and then use that as a springboard to take it to the next level. Start fine-tuning this blueprint to the extent that if our senior leadership is interested in actually making this a reality, they have all the information, the research, and the analysis at their disposal in order to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So um, if you'd like more information on that, I'd be very happy to share that with you. Uh, perhaps we could post it in, in the chat window here. Um, we'll send you the concept note that describes the project and some of the discussions that we've already had, and then we'll add you to our email list so you can attend the next workshops and also stay up to speed on all the other communications that are coming out in conjunction with the with the project. Well, thank you, Martin. Um, we are out of time, um, but thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you all for coming. Take Great. care. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events, and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.